to One Move at a Time, the U.S. Chess Podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area, one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess Podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which I go more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org or by subscribing via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the April edition of One Move at a Time. Our guest this month is Fred Wilson. In 2019, Wilson was given the Outstanding Career Achievement Award by U.S. Chess. I am John Donaldson wrote for our award ceremony that year, quote, Fred Wilson has taught thousands of young players over the decades. He has edited and authored important chess publications, including very inexpensive books for novices, and has generously provided copies of those novice works to chess associations to help bring in new players. He has edited and authored historical works that have preserved and disseminated much lost chess history. His work in preserving rare chess books and making these accessible to historians has been of great value in new chess historical research. Close quote. He has written or co-written with Bruce Albertson 14 books and was the Chess Journalist of the Year in 2003. He also was recently one of only a handful of people to achieve the master rating after reaching the age of 70. Welcome to the One Move at a Time podcast, Fred Wilson. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I'd just like to announce that my shop at 41 Union Square West in New York City at 17th Street is closed from March 23rd until the governor of New York feels it is safe for non-essential businesses to reopen. And However, if anyone wants to try and order a book or item off my website, fredwilsonchess.com, uh, I can set it aside for you, though it is unlikely I could ship anything until at least mid-April. So the actual drop date of this uh, pod is April 14th, although as we're recording this, it's we're, we're just now in, in the midst of all of the COVID-19 shutdowns. The, the dates will, are, are in a state of flux right now. It is very unlikely I won't be able to reopen until the end of April from what I'm hearing right now. Let's talk first today about what Donaldson wrote about you giving away your novice works, as that really directly speaks to our U.S. chess mission that this um, podcast is all about. Well, John may have exaggerated a little bit, but I wrote a book in 1991, 101 Questions on How to Play Chess, which was a Dover $1 thrift book. And it sold for one dollar, and uh, I think it's it's still in print right now for either three fifty or three ninety five, and it's a beginner book for adults. And yes, I gave away hundreds of copies over the years. Mainly, I gave it to parents of scholastic players it's because I heard so often I don't know how to play chess. I barely know how to play chess, and I would tell the parents I wrote a book for you, and here it is. And, you know, I run programs in independent or what we call private schools in New York City. And uh, very often uh, they put the children into the chess programs at five, six years old because they think it would be a good thing for them. But they themselves didn't know how to play or, or were very foggy on the rules, on Passant, Castling, you, you name it. As a matter of fact, right now I'll make a one little urge to all parents who want to put their children in any chess program, public school or private school, please have the standard roll-up board and plastic set at home for your child to practice on. Dan, you'd be amazed how many people send their kids to a chess program after school or morning, and they don't have a chess set at home. Although I don't, you think that that's because so many of them are are playing online, and so they're they've got two D chess boards, if not three D chess boards. I would say I hear that out of one out of ten or twelve kids that I play on my phone, I, I play online. 
I don't think that that's really true, Dan. Not yet. Not for, for five, six-year-olds. I think uh, also, Dan, you got to learn how to play 3D. Uh, <laughs> just recently, Daniel King was on Ben Johnson's podcast, and he was insisting that adults and children do a great deal of their study with real chess set, not just staring 2D. It's too easy to click through things and not really think about it. Yeah, I I also find that when I've done a lot of studying um, online and and then go to a chess tournament where I'm facing a 3D board, all of a sudden my muscle memory is different and the way I'm processing the board is different and I have to think about the opening moves much longer than I do normally when I'm playing online. Well, I'm kind of lucky. I'm old school. I've created a life for me where I don't have to get to the office until 11 or 12 noon. I spend an hour or two every morning playing through games on a nice chess set with, with my coffee. Um, it, it turned out that that habit helped me as a teacher when I began teaching 25, 26 years ago. And it helps me to this day uh, because I, I'm studying, but I don't find it arduous. So, you know, another thought occurs to me is maybe these kids are just jumping the gun towards becoming grandmasters. Because I, I seem to remember hearing or reading once that more grandmasters than not do not have a chessboard at home. Have, have you heard anything like that? No. Uh, sorry, I, I haven't. <laughs> uh, I will tell you that Samuel Ryshevsky purportedly did not own a chess set. Okay, but he was a genius, like Magnus, like Bobby. Uh, you know, Magnus would read chess books with a light when his parents thought he was asleep and he, he could follow entire games in his head easily. Uh, but no, I have not heard that. I think Hikaru is famous for saying he may have read one or two chess books. Uh, but, uh, I don't think that's what I'm hearing from, um, the, the young players out there. I mean, they do most of their studying online when they get over 2200, but, uh, uh, I, I don't think that's true, Dan. I think you really need to look at positions 3D and to think about how you would play them. It's because you're going to be faced with that sooner or later. And if you're, by the way, most of us are not great chess geniuses. In fact, my best, I was a 2250 player or, or might still be. Um, and I'm fairly good at tactics by playing for over 50 years and writing books on tactics. Most of us, are really, if we love the game, capable of getting to 1,800, 2,000, maybe 2,200, but we're not Capablanca or Hikaru or Magnus or Fabiano. Everybody in New York beat Fabiano before he was 10 years old. So, but by the time he was 11, you don't hear it too much. Right, right. So let, let's take a giant step back in your chess career and, and talk about how you first uh, got involved in the game and your first tournament experience. Okay. <clears throat> My grandfather taught me how to play when I was 10 or 11 years old, which is late, as we know nowadays. Uh, I was not good. Uh, <clears throat> My cousin Michael kept beating me with the form of checkmate. So I finally figured out how to evade it. Uh, I actually bought a book at 1112, um, Ready's Masters of the Chessboard, and went crazy trying to play through the games and teach myself descriptive because I kept making mistakes. But uh, I did start to beat Michael, and um, then he wouldn't play me anymore. So uh, I discovered what in New York City, where I grew up, there's something called the Chess House in Central Park near the famous uh, skating rink and the famous merry-go-round. And it's still there. And I used to go there in the summer, and I would get my head handed to me by the, the park players. But somehow I met both Asa Hoffman and Bernard Zuckerman. And I guess 13, 14, especially in the summer, we would play chess all day, five-minute chess, and what they would call nickel pots. So I would lose my allowance. But uh, once in every 15, 20 pots, I would beat them both. And Asa reminded me, if Bernie ever offers you a draw, that means he's losing. So um, because he wanted me to beat Bernie, because Bernie was hard to beat, he became a strong I am. And um, then Asa figured if I could beat Bernie, Asa could beat me. So uh, that, that's, but I got a ton of practice, uh, tactical and, and, and learning 
how to opening mistakes by making them five times in a row until I finally remembered how Zuckerman beat me. And um, <clears throat> my first tournament was the New York City Junior Championship, 1961. I got three wins and three losses. Uh, doesn't sound too great. My first provisional rating was 1704, which is decent. And I won the best played game prize awarded to me by Bill Lombardi because he said the game Zuckerman submitted was all booked. True story. Couldn't make this up. So uh, that's the beginning of my chess career. Um, and, you know, I, I, I also, I think a year later, played in the New York City Junior Championship and was fighting for first place uh, with Walter Brown and Paul McGreal. And I drew with Walter Brown. It was either 62 or 63. Uh, in, the, in the fifth round, we each had four and a half. Paul McGreal became a great backgammon player, one of the best ever. Um, had five. I got paired with McGreal. I chickened out of answering E4 with E5, which is what I normally do to this day. Played Ayakin's defense and got crushed. So Paul McGreal, one of the greatest backgammon players of all time, was New York City junior champion. I came in third. Brown was yelling at me, how could you do that? I said, get away from me, Walter, before I hit you. Because uh, it's a true story. Um, but a- after that, I, you know, I, I played in like Manhattan uh, chess club uh, preliminaries. I never made it to the championship. I played in Goichberg tournaments in New York City. Uh, my life was kind of odd in that I left school on my 17th birthday and got a job uh, loading trucks in the garment district, lost a lot of weight, uh, became physically strong and got a job in a rare bookstore called Appleville Gallery, then got a job in a rare bookstore that still exists in New York City, Argosy Bookstore on 59th Street between Lexington and Park. How can a rare bookstore exist in the most expensive neighborhood? Because they own the building. Uh, I worked there, and I got married at 19, but I I still kept playing. Uh, I just think uh, what happened to me is that the, the marriage and having to work six days a week uh, it interfered with the playing at, at 21. I had the greatest tournament of my life, which has not been repeated yet, yet in which I tied for first with three grandmasters, Ross Limo, Banco and Biscay. I lost to Nick Ross Limo in round two, won all the rest of my game, beat Walter Shipman and Ariel Mangarini in rounds five and six and won $167 and 50 cents, which really impressed my wife. Because in those days, Dan, that was a week's pay. Right, right. So that's then my chess career has been erratic since then. I, I took a decade off between 1980, more or less, and 1990. My rating sunk from 2189 to 1989. Uh, I started playing again a little bit at the Marshall when I had a hernia operation and couldn't do distance running or exercise. And then uh, I'd say in the last 12 years, I've decided I like playing in New Jersey. And I I've, um, I kind of raised my rating from about 2049 to the high of 2210. Right now it's 2184, but, you know, I'm never going to quit. And um, I like four-round game in 60s. Uh, I tend to play almost exclusively at uh, International Chess Academy tournaments in Hackensack, New Jersey, at Bergen Academy High School. Anybody in the tri-state area should know that the next one is hopefully May 17th. And um, in the open section is in the teacher's cafeteria, totally separate from the rest of the tournament, the children and the lower-rated players. And free bagels, coffee, and this is really important, Dan, two bathrooms for only open section players to use. So I play in four or five of those every year. And uh, over the last decade, um, I raised my rating by nearly 200 points. And yes, at 71, I went over 2200 USCF for the first time. And uh, I slipped a little bit. Though in the last one, I won the senior prize and got 13 points back. So I'm 2184. I will point out in New York City's Bankers Chess League, which has a very pure rating system, no floors, no bonus points, very clean system. I got up to 2256 uh, in the early 1990s and late 1980s. Um, and uh, that rating is kind of 
comparable to a 2300 USDF rating. Uh, again, as you know, there's inflation in our system because of the floor. So when somebody who's no longer 2200 or 2100 is losing often to 18, 1900 players, they're getting more points than they should. And I think that adds a, a, an inflationary number of points into our system. I, I don't know if you agree, but I don't know the solution to that because if we don't have floors, we're going to have ringers and cheats. So, well, and isn't another reason for that's the history of my chess career as a player. I'm still at it. Isn't another reason for floors uh, just to encourage people to keep playing um, as their strength may be diminishing because people just find their uh, their their ratings just so important to them. Um, I hadn't thought about that, and you know, you might be right. I had a very bad tournament in New Jersey Open 30 years ago, sunk to 1989. Um, I got so discouraged, I stopped playing for a while. In fact, I started playing again in the New York City Bankers League, figuring, what the heck? I was asked to be the mercenary board one for some bank, because they knew I was a good player. Um, I'm kind of ambivalent about the floors, though, because I still think they basically were introduced by Goitschberg to prevent people from dumping and therefore winning another 10, 10 grand in the open, you know, in the under 1800 section at the World Open or Foxwoods or Las Vegas, places like that. Uh, I think that's the real reason for the for the floors. Um, there's something to be said for people getting permanent titles, uh, like. Uh, I have a certificate that says I'm, I'm a national master, that I made national master. So even if my rating sinks under that, I have this proof that I was and can still be master strength player. Um, since I'm 74, I can say this. I think people should, my age, over 50, should stop getting so discouraged if they occasionally have uh, poor results. They should look for for situations, time controls that that they're comfortable with. Uh, it, it's it's in other words, my last tournament, uh, my last two or three tournaments actually, I I lost to, to an eleven year old rated just under two thousand. He played very well. I drew with a twenty one hundred. I drew with uh, Stepanski's best student in New Jersey, Gary Shrevlenko. I've drawn with him twice. He's 11. He's about 2150. Um, all these, uh, I, I drew an interesting game with a boy named Junior Tay, who was about 2100, who's 11. Um, we had a 10 minute discussion after the game that was fantastically interesting. Like he was 18 or 20 years old discussing the game. His father had to drag him away. Um, Gary has been most respectful and a, a very, very good opponent. Um, so I, 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 I hear a lot of people my age or in their 60s complaining about playing kids. But if they behave, I just see them as good chess players. I like to believe there's always something I know that they don't. And it's true. I teach children, even strong children, so that I may have more confidence against them. But still, even if emotionally somebody's 11 or 12, if they're 21, 50, they're a good player. They understand things. You should enjoy playing good players. It, it, I mean, at my level, my dream before I'm 80, I'd like to get to 2300. That's the last goal. Uh, I, I don't. I think it's going to be very difficult. It may not happen. It's realistic. But okay, the people I'm going to be playing, Dan, are largely between 1800 and 2300. Whether it's a kid or whether it's um, New Jersey masters and, and high experts that are, who are adults, I don't see the difference. It, it's You should welcome playing strong players. And if your ego is strong enough, losing to a child uh, at chess who's rated 2100, what's the difference between that and losing to a 45-year-old who's rated 2100? I don't. The, the 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 number does reflect the level of skill, and uh, it's, it, all right, it's the end of the speech. But I wish older players would stop quitting the game they love 
and realizing that, you know, without the downs, the ups don't mean much. It's 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 like um, Miguel Nidorf once once had a, a a great line. In fact, I'm going to read it to you because it's in an article about him uh, in the New and Chess from about nine ten years ago. He, they asked him what chess had taught him, and now Nidorf is, is over seventy. He says, "I learned how to lose, but I have a, had a happy life. Chess has given me the strength to go on living, and my finest game is still yet to come." Yes, that's. I think I think that that's. I, I would like. I think I can say that true. And let's hope that my finest game and yours, Dan, is still yet to come. Um, well, if you look at my collection of games, uh, as my finest game has to be <laughs> still to come because <laughs> it's definitely not in my past. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm curious, uh, what for you as a senior player? Is what, what's the most difficult aspect to uh, playing chess at at this age? For for me, I, I'm 55 years old, and I've I find that hours long chess games are just a real drain on me now, and I don't have the endurance for it that I used to. What what, what is the most difficult aspect for you? Well, again, I said I found a time control that suits me. So let let's put this in perspective. Everybody has to think this through. Maybe I'm a bit lucky. I was always a good blitz player. I never liked game in 30. I thought that was too fast. You, you think hard until move 25 and then you're in a five-minute game. Um, I did have, from the World Blitz Chess Association, I got as high as 2309. Plus, I wrote all those books with Bruce Alberson on chess tactics, most of which are still in print. And that, that further enhanced my short-range tactical ability. But I started playing in these tournaments in New Jersey, uh, particularly the ones run by International Chess Academy, and usually Noreen Davison is the chief TD, uh, really well-run tournaments. It's game in 64 rounds. I find for me, who's a fairly good, fast player, and I know my openings quite well now, finally. Um, that's a great time control, a two-hour game. Uh, I'm not a great calculator, so I kind of have to say, uh, bring it. Uh, I'm going to sack that piece. I'm going to pitch that pawn. It looks good. I'm, I don't want to, I don't, I can't think about this for 40 minutes, like in a two hour each game. So, uh, that, that, and I, I do other, another smart thing. I take a buy in the first round. So I go out there, I get there around noon. From New York, I go to the Hackensack, and um, I play six, willing to play six hours of chess, almost without a break, with some coffee, eat a bagel, do, do my best, do my damnedest, and whatever happens is okay. And but yes, and I pay for it. Uh, the next couple of days, I'm pretty tired. I'm pretty beat. If if I did well, it's a good tired. If I played like a dope in the last round, it's a bad tired. I'm, I'm kind of down. But um, a good friend of mine once said, you'll never give it up. And I said, why? And she said, because you love it too much. And that's true. Um, Dan, the feeling of playing a good game or pulling out a difficult, wild, chaotic game and you've survived, that's a feeling money can't mm -hmm. buy, Dan. No, I, I, I agree with that. So I, I would say, I would say yes. Uh, I've tried to accommodate the fact that I don't have the stamina, and I probably don't calculate as quickly or as deeply as when I was 20 to 30. When I got back in the old days, I got up to 2189. If there's 50, 100-point rating difference, I had, was master strength then by today's standards. But... The compensation for me is I know my openings. Uh, I uh, try to be well-rested. I, I, I try to play in this one particular tournament, and there are probably others in Jersey especially, um, that I, I find the Marshall kind of crowded, although a lot of people love playing there because they can play one game a week at night. And that's another way to do it. Play one serious three-, four-hour game once a week in the evening, 7 to 11, that makes sense too. Try and be rested that day. Um, 
I don't see me ever playing a six-round tournament again over uh, two or three days, with one exception. Uh, the World Amateur Team Tournament in Parsippany with the 13, 1400 players that's organized by Steve Doyle. I, I'm a vendor at that, as you know. But if I'm ever not the vendor or someday I just hire someone to, to run my concession, I will play in that. I will play the two games a day, uh, five-hour game, real-time control. And um, just, just because, it, just to play, to see how I would do having to play a, a couple of four or five-hour games in one day. So let's let's pivot now from your life as a player to your life as a chess businessman because I think that most people who when they recognize your name they recognize it from your your bookshop. Um, talk about the growth and evolution of your 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 chess book business. I understand you started it in 1973. Okay, um, I had back in 1973. I guess uh, yeah, I'm 27. Um, I uh, <clears throat> mysteriously got fired by Argosy Bookstore. I was doing a little bit of book selling, uh, American First Editions uh, and Americana, uh, on my own. I think they were afraid I was taking customers' names from them. I was not. I would never do such a thing. So I collected unemployment for six months and opened my own, quote, rare book business. But I was in competition with a ton of people, um, selling first editions, Americana, color plate books, blah, blah, blah. And um, I, I rented a little office on 69th Street in the basement of an apartment building in New York City for $65 a month. It was illegal, but there were several illegal little offices in the basement of this building and uh, on 3rd Avenue and 69th, <clears throat> good neighborhood. And um, I started to do mail order and tried to compete with the big boys and you know, was undercapitalized. And I put out a list of duplicates from my chess book collection. I had already assembled a nice collection of chess books, uh, partially from the earlier dealers in New York City, Albrecht Bushke, who was a, a dealer in, in New York from about 1940 to 1981 when he was bought out from, by Dale Brandreth, who sadly passed away last year. Um, in some ways, since Dale died and Robert... Bob Long, was, was the bookseller, was murdered a couple of months ago. I'm like the last bookman standing in terms of a specialist kind of an out-of-print used and early and rare. But um, I put out a list of duplicates for my collection, and I, I had gotten some names of collectors, and the list sold out. Well, that's a very high percentage. That's in, in, in the, in the, the the rare and out-of-print book business, if you sell 40-50% of a catalog, this was in the days before the internet, uh, you were doing great. So 100% kind of told me something. I picked up a couple of super customers, and eventually, Dan, I began to, to, to specialize entirely in, in, in chess books. By, uh, by a, a, a year or so later, I'm a chess book dealer. And somehow I made it work. Uh, in 1960, um, excuse me, not 1969, in 1979, I'm still eking out a living and supporting a family, basically mail order, out of print, and rare chess books. I have bought a couple of tremendous libraries, one uh, out of Baton Rouge by a man who had bought James Seguin's house and found his library in the attic. Uh, James Seguin was the chess columnist for the <clears throat> New Orleans Times Democrat and an opponent of Morphe's. And uh, so I, I bought that over the phone over six months and sold that. A uh, couple of the great items in David Delush's collection come from me, but in a roundabout way. I sold them to somebody else, like Steinitz's copy of the Modern Chess Instructor inscribed to his best friend saying, please accept this, my first copy of the modern chess instructor. It is not for sale and will not be until when, whatever date, as the copyright in England has to be secured first. You know, with all best wishes, William Steinitz. So that, that copy now is in the David DeLucia collection in Connecticut, but I'm the one that kind of unearthed it and discovered it. So I made a living in the out of print, rare, used chess book business. In November 6, 79, 
my b- building went co-op. Everyone had to move. I found an office at 80 East 11th Street, which actually where Albert Bushke was. He was on the sixth floor. I was on the third floor. 80 East 11th Street or 799 Broadway was the St. Dennis Hotel. Now, two famous people stayed at the St. Dennis Hotel. One was Abraham Lincoln during the Lincoln-Douglas debates at Cooper Union. Somebody else stayed there in 1857. Who do you think that was, Dan? I think I actually know the answer to this. Uh, Paul Morphy. Paul Morphy stayed at the St. Dennis Hotel when he won the first American Chess Congress. So I'm in this 1854 building. Um, by the way, Marcel Duchamp had a studio on the fourth floor for many years. The USCF was located on the sixth floor for a while when Frank Brady was editor of Chess Life. And I'm in there till about two and a half years ago. The building got sold for $100 million when the single owner d- died. Uh, we're all told, don't worry, every- we're gonna- everything's going to be fine. And, of course, that wasn't true. They... Uh, just got us all out of there, like maybe 60, 70 small businesses. And it was not a landmark, 1854 Hotel, somehow not a landmark, but you know how it works in New York. If if a real estate company wants to build a modern tech building, they find a way to do it. And um, so um, I managed to land on my feet. I'm now at 41 Union Square West. 17th Street on Broadway, opposite Union Square. It's for those of you who have ever been to my shop. I was, you know, 38 years in one place. Uh, I've been in business 47 years. The goal is used to be 50 years, but that seems kind of short now. So maybe let's go for 60 years, okay, Dan? And um, okay, I have 170 square feet. It's way easier to browse than my 2,000 or more books for sale. It's, it's, it's much roomier. I have a large storage space, so there's not tons of boxes taking up the floor. I have enormous window facing north. I get beautiful north light. And if you visit me in the evening, you will uh, see the Empire State Building beautifully lit up because I'm on the seventh floor. So I kind of landed on my feet. cost me about 400 more a month in rent. But, you know, if you have to make more money, um, you just work a little harder, right, Dan? So that's, that's what you do. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and that's the story of my uh, business. Well, the one thing I left out is I began to discover in the early 90s that it was harder and harder to buy libraries. Uh, and it's become, you know, I bought a couple of large libraries the last two years. But because of eBay, um, like a lot of people put, put their stuff up on eBay or they if they have a, a niece, daughter, friend who can do it for them, uh, what happens is scarce and out-of-print or rare chess books tend to go for retail prices correctly described on eBay, which a dealer can't pay the retail price or he can't make a profit. So as I began to see libraries drying up, I got into teaching uh, around 1994 or 5. Yeah. And um, I would say now about 70% of my income is teaching in independent schools or what the people would really call private schools in New York City. I run uh, programs in, in three uh, big schools, and um, I'm, I'm very happy doing it. I kind of in, uh, I enjoy teaching kids. Yes, some kids are dumped in there as kind of for enhanced babysitting, but the, the majority of them I can reach. I remember you had a guy on uh, from Atlanta who talked about uh, the 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 difficulty of balancing trying to teach hardcore chess with understanding that a lot of the kids in there may not really be ready for that. They they want to have fun. So you've got to have a balance. You do have to teach some things. I mean, one thing I would scream at all chess teachers, and I know I know this from t- tournament directors that that uh, from Sophia Rhodes and Noreen Davison, that in scholastic tournaments, there's so many kids particularly K1, who can't even mate with a king and queen. And like, so I've, I've, I've become kind of a fundamentalist. Learn how to mate with a king and queen. Learn how to mate with two rooks. Learn what a battery is. And finally, finally, I have contests on how quickly kids can mate with king and rook against lone king. And they like that. If, 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 I, if they like seeing... Yeah, no, I, I actually... Yes, 
Dan, sorry. No, I was just, just going to say I actually reached class C myself without knowing how to mate with a king and rook. And the first time I faced uh, faced it, I was a little shocked that I couldn't do it. Wow. Well, that that kind of that kind of tells us a lot about some adults who may be good tactically for whatever reasons. You know, can can calculate five, seven, nine ply, right? But but they don't understand the basic opposition. You know. Or they they have a I I've watched in New Jersey people rated over eighteen hundred take ten minutes to mate with a king and rook. I mean a grown ups, not a kid. You know a kid, any kid rated over a thousand can, can do it in, in an eye blink. You know that. So uh, right, uh, right. No, it is interesting. I think with the chess is. We, we know it's growing, it's, it's expanding rapidly, and it's largely because of the Internet. I think, though, you do get a lot of sloppy adult players who have some tactical ability, so they have fun, they win some games, uh, they see shots quickly, but you know, they don't know basic opposition, they have trouble mating with a king and rook. Uh, they, there's no way they can mate with a king and two bishops, or we don't even talk about bishop and knight. But, but they don't learn fundamentals, but... Um, you know, it, eventually, if you want to do well in tournaments, you're you're going to have to learn some of them. Anyway, that's uh, I'm, I'm giving a couple of speeches here, but I'm just <laughs> exhorting, uh, begging chess teachers of uh, uh, children, K-1-2 kids, make sure they're, they're good, comfortable at mating with a king and queen, at least that. So, like, tournament directors don't have to stand there and start counting moves. <laughs> If you talk to people who work at the, the elementary nationals, they 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 just roll their eyes. So, um, so the uh, I, yeah, it's 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 a balance. I mean, the the fellow you had on who, that you worked for in the Greater Atlanta area was right in that. In the beginning, chess teachers took took their view of, of what people wanted rather than asking people what they wanted from chess, what what the market wanted. And I, I think there's a balance. I think you have to, if not force feed, provide some genuine fundamental instruction, then let them play and have fun. And the ones who really love it will stick with it. That is uh, Justin Morrison of Kid Chest that you referenced. He was our March guest on the One Move at a Time show. So I found him very, very engaging and very interesting. Yeah, no, I've 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 been friends with Justin for uh, almost twenty years now, and and I agree agree with you wholeheartedly. So, as a chess teacher, are you a one man shop, or do you bring in other coaches with you? Uh, currently, um, I use uh, Noreen Davison as uh, my co teacher at Grace Church School, and Rita Kelly is my beginner teacher at um, City and Country School and Village Community School. Um, I've used many other uh, uh, people uh, over the years, uh, but so I'm not really a one-man shop. I'm a three-person shop. Uh, I uh, I have backup people if, if somebody goes down. Uh, also on my list, uh, Harold Scott, for instance, a well-known uh, teacher, tournament director in, in New York City. Uh, uh, I've actually served as, as a backup teacher to Beatrice Marinello um, at, at Dalton when somebody went down a couple of times last year. So, um, and what was funny is I went through this tremendous vetting by, by the Dalton school. It's a very um, posh, uh, large and uh, highly regarded private school in New York city. And um, I've been at my other school so long, I never went through all of this stuff. Uh, I'm kind of grandfathered in, but, now I've been vetted by Dalton, so uh, I'm, I'm, I can officially sub there or teach there uh, if they if they need me. Um, I find I'm doing a little more book selling now. Well, particularly the schools are closed in New York until April 20th, and I, I believe longer than that. Um, and I'm putting stuff up on the website that when I'm able to. And uh, yeah, I wanted to just remind people if they see something on the website, I can set it aside for them and ship. You, yeah, you say this is running April 12th or 14th. I, I, I can probably ship things by April 30th. Um, the, the last thing I would say is that 
uh, about the, the book business is it's gotten a little more difficult in terms of um, buying collections. And what I think has happened is you're right about the, the, the younger people more and more getting everything online or getting everything off the computer. So there might be less. And whenever somebody comes in, who's clearly like 21, 25, 19, and they're looking for books, I'm happy. Uh, that they, and it, it seems as though many of the, the young people still, uh, they feel like they can get everything they need off the, off the computer, but I still think they're mainly talking about everything they need about, about opening theory. Um, oh, here's a strange fact for you. Despite the, the incredible amount of online um, resources to improve that we hear about all the time, uh, the chessable and, and a million other things, um, more chess books are being published, Dan, than ever before. More. It's just in fewer hard copy printings, and meaning fewer numbers. My Simple Attacking Plants was published in 1,800 copies, and now it's been reprinted. And it, uh, it's doing pretty well. Uh, 15, 20 years ago, it would have been a minimum of 3,000 copies. Uh, I think what you're seeing is like every man and quality chess and Batsford that they're, they're printing tons of mangoes. Uh, they're printing, they're doing lots of books, but, um, the, 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 the hard copy printings are smaller. And as you probably know, a, a lot of stuff is available for instance, through forward chess or Kindle or every man has their own system. So, but, but more books are strangely, more books are coming out than I ever remember. So I guess with the tremendous expansion or explosion of people who like chess, who play chess, who are interested, some of them, Dan, still want to buy books. Yeah, and this kind of fits with the saying that I've, I've always heard, although I've never found an authoritative source for this, that more books have been written about chess than all other games combined. Um, I said that. <laughs> okay. Right. I said that more than once on my my old radio show, uh, folks. I did a, a a show similar to what Ben Johnson does on perpetualchesspod.com, similar to what Dan is doing right now for USCF. Um, I interviewed people from about 2002 to 2006, and um, uh, I probably said that several times, and I believe. Some of my sources were like Dale Brandreth or Andy Saltis, but <clears throat> I've always believed, and it may, I might still be true, that the literature of chess internationally, the entire literature from, from China to Bulgaria to Hungary to Venezuela, the entire literature of chess in all of the languages is larger than the literature of all of the games combined. I think that is still true. Well, it was certainly at one time somebody figured out it was like 40,000 titles, but that may have been whenever I think 20 years ago, Dan, I must mean 30, 35 years ago. Well, well, from now on, I'm going to claim you as my authoritative source. Uh, it's, it is amazing. Um, so you've, now you've contributed as we, to, to this literature as, as we've, we've talked about briefly. What, what came first, being a chess book seller or being a chess book author? Uh, first, a seller. Then uh, my late ex-wife, <clears throat> out of the blue, somehow called Dover Publications and got through to the president, Hayward Zirker, and said, my husband, always complaining about Dover is not reprinting the right books. <clears throat> and he's, <clears throat> excuse me, um, a, a, a just bookseller and a high-rated player. Well, she thought 2150 at that time was high-rated. And um, <clears throat> so he said, well, why don't we have him bring a batch down and we'll, we'll, we'll set up a conference, a meeting. And she, so I went down to Dover, which used to be on Barrack Street in New York City, and now they're out in Minneola, Long Island, and with a batch of stuff. And um, I got paid, you know, let's say this would be 
1974-5, I got paid $100 for the, for the, <clears throat> the uh, what, what would you call it, a, a meeting or a consultation, consulting fee. And uh, they bought all the books. And uh, I was their consultant for about 20 years. Uh, we kind of had a falling out at the end. I was getting like a $1,200 a year consulting fee. I was writing up kind of book reports for that, making suggestions. And then towards the end, after Circa died, uh, I was finally told, well, it's not clear you're still a consultant when I was asking them for where's my six-month check. And well, we had a falling out. But uh, in, in the meantime, I did several books for them. What happened is... <clears throat> I'm their consultant, and I had a brainstorm. Uh, there was a series of books called The British Yearbooks of Chess. They covered, um, there were like nine volumes covered 11 years, and it was something like 1906 to 1918 or something. And they were in, in descriptive notation, which didn't scare anybody in the, in the 60s and 70s. And um, I thought I could make anthologies out of uh, these books of, 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 of matches, especially Lasker World Championship matches and other matches that were held, uh, uh, Tarash Tregorin and stuff like that, and just chop up a couple of sets of these and, and do photo offsetting. Anyway, <clears throat> Dover went for the idea. I did it for a straight fee. And the classical chess matches was the first, and lesser-known chess masters pieces was the second. And uh, then they asked me, Hayward Zerker himself, he showed me a copy of someone's pictorial history of magic and said, could you do this for chess? And I said, yeah, I guess so. And uh, that turned into a year of incredibly hard work, a visit to the Cleveland Public Library. Um, and I wrote a, a picture history of chess, but I did it for a straight fee. Folks, don't. Do a year's worth of hard work for a publisher for a straight fee. Get royalty. Don't make my mistake. <clears throat> and uh, so I got 100 copies of the book and $1,000 for doing that. And I probably made about $5 an hour. But it was it went through three printings. 8,200 copies got printed. Uh, to show you the difference in how many copies get printed then, then and now. And... Um, uh, it's it's a good book. It kind of established me as a <clears throat> de facto chess historian, even though I never went to college. Still, I could do research. So I actually have a copy of this book uh, sitting here on my desk. Um, I visited your chess shop in spring of 94, and you signed the book to me on April 11th, 1994. So 26 years ago, and thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. And do you have one that says, by Fred Wilson or edited by Fred Wilson? It says by Fred Wilson. Good. You have the better edition. That has some corrections <laughs> and improvements. That's the second and third printings. Uh, in the first, it was edited by. I didn't like that. I wrote all the text. It was edited by a man named John Grafton. Uh, I finished it in 1975. And it finally came out in 81 because it was such a big job to combine the text with, with what they called the blues, the illustrations. That, that people kept stalling until finally uh, somebody was ordered to do it by, by Circa. So it comes out and says edited by, and I call up the complaint in the editorial department. He said, that's our policy with pictorial books. I said, yeah, but I wrote like 30,000, 40,000 words. That's all the text is mine. There's a lot of text in that book. And I said, no, that's our policy. So I ran into Hayward Circa himself at the New York Antiquarian Book Fair uh, a year or two later. And told him, yeah, you know, the book's doing well. It'll probably be reprinted. Very happy with it. And I said, yeah, but can can, can you get rid of the edited and just say bye? Parker said, I agree with you. You wrote the book. Uh, if it's reprinted, I will tell them to change it and remove the edited. So um, at later, when I'm visiting Dover for another. Uh, consultation conference offering more out-of-print books for sale and making recommendations, I got some dirty looks in the editorial department. <laughs> um, but but it, it, I think it proves, try and go to the man or woman at the top. Yeah, that's If you the, think something is, is wrong, it's not correct. I mean, if you, you, you're, you're right. So if you're sitting there with like three inches of double-spaced typewritten pages that is your text for a book and you know it's probably 40 50,000 words you don't want to hear you edited something 
So, right. Um, um, so one of your you did a lot of co-authoring with Bruce Albertson. I, I'm not very familiar with him, and I suspect a lot of our listeners aren't either. To talk a little bit about your co-author Bruce Albertson. Bruce Albertson was a terrific guy. <clears throat> he was a wonderful man, kind, uh, loved loved chess, loved chess. Uh, one of his career goal was to make the um, the 200 games that master rating uh, so that he's a lifetime master or something, um, which uh, occasionally he got discouraged trying to do, but uh, he, he, he succeeded. <clears throat> he was roughly 2300, 2350 strength USCF. He was a FIDE master, but he's also important for other things. When the chess teaching first started big, I think when chess in the schools in New York City, which was putting free chess programs into elementary schools all over the five boroughs in New York, Bruce Alberston developed a whole series of very fundamental positions that everybody was using. In fact, he invented Monster Knight, you know, just and Monster Pawn and Monster Rook that just capture, 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 capture as a reiterative way of getting like five, six-year-olds to understand how pieces move and capture. Um, curiously, Bruce had no children, but he loved children. And for a strong master, he was the greatest beginner teacher I ever saw. He, he could really bring it down to their level. He had obsessions, like he wanted to teach them to take things. And he wanted to teach them to, to castle. And he wanted to... The, he. He was very big about teaching what a battery is. And, you know, besides fork and pin, he was big on batteries. So, so, so am I. Um, Bruce loved chess, chess history, had a fine library, and used to visit my store. And one day he suggested, I have a ton of positions, and you have a – remember what a G3 Mac was? No, I don't. It was the first Super Macintosh computer. I got one in like 1995 for 3000 bucks, which I mean, they, they cost more in those days, you know? Um, uh, he said, I could make Linares diagrams and stuff. He said, he said, why don't we do a book together? So I approached Dover. Uh, I had done one other book for Dover, by the way, I did 101 questions on how to play chess, which sold 70 or 80,000 copies. And I did that for a straight feed too. I repeat promising young authors, don't do things for a straight fee. Get royalties or don't do it. The advance is less important than the royalties, unless you don't think it's going to sell. But um, at any rate, so Bruce and I did this book, 202 Surprising Checkmates. And he did a lot of weird mates in one that are like problem-like positions. It's trying, And I did. I was more interested in standard, slightly difficult mates in two that could happen in real games. So that book um, was was a book we did for Delver, again, for a straight fee, but we had it in the contract that if it went out of print, we would get our rights back. Well, it went out of print after a couple of printings. You know, it probably sold 6,000 copies, something at least, and, you know, called them, no response, wrote them. And then talked to a lawyer, sent the registered letter demanding our rights back, and was told if they don't respond in six months, you have proof they received that you got your rights back. And that's exactly what happened. They never responded. That's a kind of a scummy way that some publishers behave, I think, just hoping that you'll dry up and blow away, that you won't ask to demand your rights back. I think today now, with the print-on-demand thing, they can claim it's in print all the time. You know, unless you try and order 200 copies yourself or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, well, anyway, the, that book was reprinted by Hannah Russell. And, uh, and it became 212 surprising checkmates. But in the meantime, <clears throat> uh, somehow um, we, or I found Avery Cardoza, Cardoza Publishing. And he used to be right across the street from where my office is now. Now he's in Las Vegas. He publishes a lot of gambling books. And um, so I did 303 Tricky Checkmates, 303 Tricky Chess Tactics, three, uh, two more 303 books, four of them with Bruce Alberston for Cardoso. So they're all in print. So we get small royalties on them. We split 
Bruce has passed away. So Bruce's widow and I each get 3% royalty, 6%. Uh, then we moved on to Sterling. We did two books for Sterling publications, more 303s. We like the number, Dan. What can I tell you? Uh, what we tried to do was get a big, like, three or $4,000 advance because the, the, the royalties were never great. And finally, after Bruce passed away, I got my last book, Simple Attacking Plans, which is probably my best book, that along with Picture History, um, published by Mongoose, who gives a very good royalty. Uh, a small advance, but much more important was the very good royalty. And are you ready for this? They let me format it. Uh, Leonid at Mongoose, who, who owns Mongoose Publishing, does a lot of good chess books. And they asked me, what did I have in mind for the cover? They actually asked the author, Dan, what do you think should be on the cover? Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that is highly unusual. So the position from a Walter Brown game where he sacks his queen for a mate and three against Ballone, uh, that's what I wanted on the cover. The game's in the book. And uh, I'm extremely happy with how that book is selling and, and how they produced it. Uh, Joel Benjamin gave me a, a kind of rave review in Chess Life about five or six years ago. When he was doing some reviews along with Pete Tamburo uh, before Hartman became the regular reviewer. Oh, funnily enough, I ran into John Hartman at the uh, at USAID at the U S Amateur Team Championship in Parsippany with the fourteen hundred players in February, and he he was very nice, really sharp guy. Uh, your book reviewer, and he's a collector. And he told me, oh, your simple attacking plans. I used it for teaching all the time. <laughs> yep. John was my teammate at, at this year's U.S. Amateur Team East. We sent a uh, U.S. chess team to uh, help celebrate the 50th edition of the event for Steve Doyle. Um, so, And yes, and John is also our editor of Chess Life Online. So this has been a really fun, wide-ranging discussion with, with you, uh, Fred. I, I'd like to leave you with one more question. Actually, it's, it's kind of a two-part question. And you've been uh, involved in U.S. chess matters for many decades now. A as the organization has evolved, what, what, is, what have you seen as the good in that evolution and the bad in that evolution? Well, that's a, that's a good question. <clears throat> I'm, I'm actually glad you asked it. Uh, <clears throat> just to give you the coughing is bronchitis I'm not sick folks okay I believe the organization has evolved from being aimed primarily at tournament chess players to primarily or at least half halfly at scholastic players and their parents and, and that's reflected in the magazine. So um, I took home uh, 1971 bound volume of Chess Life when it was edited by Bert Hochberg. Uh, <clears throat> just that I'm gotta have stuff to study at home, folks. You know, I'm I'm trapped at home like everybody else. And in the very first issue, there's a fantastic article by Bernard Zuckerman, uh, basically on the Philidor defense, where uh, black captures the D point immediately and just tries to bring out his pieces in castle. And it's like a ton of theory, a, a game Zuckerman beat Nicolaj, he beat this guy. Uh, but in that issue, the next couple of issues, you have Robert Burns, Benko, Saltus, Keras, Lombardi, all these people writing for the magazine. There's uh, Larry Evans on chess, no baby talk at all was really aimed at people willing to work who were at least understanding-wise 1,600 or better. So the magazine has, has changed, but I think the goals of the Federation, as Alan Priest has outlined on the forums and in the magazine, has changed. They, they, they feel that for the, the, the organization to grow, they need to uh, promote chess and education and chess as a, as a way of, of, of helping the, the community, helping older people, but particularly chess and education and enhancing critical thinking skills of children in a fun way, in a, perhaps a, a less stressful way. And um, 
So I, I think that, that the, the purpose of, of, of the Dutch Federation has changed. Uh, a lot of the older players are not happy about it. Uh, right now, in, in chess life, <clears throat> I think you have you don't have the amount of, of real hardcore chess that we used to have. You don't. You, you have Saltis, who's great. You have Naroditsky, who does terrific endgame column. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, that was a lucky find by probably you. And um, you have Hess. But remember, we used to also have the game of the month by Gligorich. And afterwards, we had Mike Rowe doing the game of the month. And, and there used to be more real hardcore chess in the magazine. But I feel like a lot of the articles are kind of aimed at the parents of scholastic players. Uh, however, our membership is, you could tell me, is it more scholastic players, people under 18 or less? So we are at about 60% under 18 now of our, of our membership. Um, okay, this, this enables you to, to, to get more, as a 501c3, to get more corporate donations, to get more money to spend on promoting justice and education, and perhaps to, therefore, um, increase the number of, of chess players, people who become adults, may leave it for a while, but come back to it, who, who will always enjoy it, will have it for their entire lives. Um, I would just ask them not, not to forget the older players. I knew there was a little bit of difficulty in getting funding for the U.S. senior team, which has now won the World Senior Team Championships three times. Let's, let's not forget these guys. The, the, these guys were in the trenches working for peanuts uh, in, 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 in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And um, the, it, 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 there's, there's, there's got to be a balance. Uh, so I, I, I see the purpose of the OCF has changed somewhat. Uh, I, I think it still represents me. And, I, I, and they, 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 you know, they have this rating system with which they have to maintain. And they, they are, it's getting very, very complicated to keep the rules straight. I personally... And I'm not alone. I'm disturbed when they suck up the FIDE and tell you in a, in a FIDE-rated tournament, if you turn a rook upside down because there's no second queen around, that's a rook. And that you can't write down your move before playing it. But I've been told in a USDF-rated tournament that that one is no longer true. And that only if your opponent complains may you not write down your move before you, 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 you play it. Like we've all been trained to do by reading Think Like a Grandmaster. Even you, Dan. So, um, <laughs> yes. So I think, you know, I, I, I feel USCF is evolving. Um, my sense is Carol's doing a great job because she was brought in to, to, to help it function as a successful and a justified 501c3. And, um, you know, I, I think the magazine could be aimed a little bit more at real chess players because you do have chess for kids, well, chess life for kids also. So I, um, but, but that's just me. Uh, I understand uh, all the, the stories about successful programs and coaching programs and teaching programs. Um, the magazine is, that comes to those scholastic players is probably often read by their parents more, more than the kids. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I see the evolution of, of USCF. I mean, right now it, it's clear though. They are much stronger than they were in the past. You and I both know they almost went bankrupt a couple of times. And they were saved by individuals uh, 20, 30 years ago. So um, but that, that doesn't seem to be a, a danger any longer. Um, and saved by individuals just a few years ago right, as well. Right, right. Um, I've become... I become more tolerant of people who disagree with me as I get older, but I, I become less <laughs> likely to, 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 to bend the truth to make people feel better. Uh, in, in other words, um, I, I like to repeat to seniors who, who are discouraged that, 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 that they're getting weaker or they don't like to play kids. Um, just, just decide who you are. You, in other words, there's a there's a nasty line in literature in which um, I like to think 
no longer applies to me. And it may have applied to me during the decade that I wasn't playing. Uh, that the man that is will shadow the man that pretends to be. So um, I think what we should all try to do is become the man that, that we want to be, the man that is, is the man that, that we are. And so if you're getting older and, and you're not as successful, find a comfortable tournament to play in a comfortable time control. Don't give up the game you love. Look for situations where you can still function for one or two games uh, at your best. And, um, yeah, the kids are stronger. But uh, they're going to grow up and become young adults who are good players. And um, I guess the good news, Dan, is more people than ever are playing and enjoying chess. That, that's absolutely the, the bottom line for all of us, I think. And I think you've summed it up great. I think this is a good spot for us to end. Uh, Fred Wilson, thank you so much for joining us on this April edition of One Move at a Time. And listeners, if you've never been to New York or if you've been to New York and never visited Fred's bookshop, uh, please do. We'll have the address on our website in the show notes. Again, Fred, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Dan. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at US Chess are Cover Stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month, and on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director Pete Karianis. I hope that you have learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess.